0: Heavenly Father, I thank you for leaders. I thank you for the men and women who have positioned themselves in service to this body, made sacrifices, committed themselves to the time and effort and the travails that accompany service. I thank you, Father, for that sacrifice on their part. As a body, Father, we lift them up, thanking you for them. And Father, as a body under their authority, we ask, Lord, that you would help us do more as well in service, individually, wherever that need may be. Uh, Equip us, Father, through the teaching of your word. Encourage us and cover us in the prayers of others around us. Show us, Father, the, the joy of seeing the fruit of ministry as others might become children of God by faith and join our body as you may appoint, Father. Let us see that outcome, not for our own sake, but for your glory. Help us be the church, Father, that you intend. The one that represents your love to this city and the grace of the gospel that we've received to others who are desperately in need of it, Father. Help us to have a heart for that and not to be self-satisfied with our building or with our crowd or with anything that we can point to for those things, Father, you have given and you can take away. But we ask, Father, that we would be satisfied in the eternal work that you're doing through us. And may we do all the more in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, this week's lesson is kind of a part two to something that we started last week. And if you remember last week, Jesus, at the end of 17, was explaining to his disciples that in the near future that the Messiah was going to suffer, he was going to die, ultimately be raised again. And you remember how those men reacted to that. They, they, they couldn't understand it, the Bible says. The thought of their Messiah dying, it was just too hard to accept And as I taught through that last week, I told you that the confusion that these men had, every time they heard Jesus say, I'm going to die, why was it hard for them to grasp that? I told you it's because they lacked an understanding of two foundational points of Christian theology. And those two points are, first, they did not appreciate the incarnation of God, that is, of God becoming man, and they honestly did not understand the self-sacrificial nature of God's love. And if you don't understand those two concepts... If you don't understand God becoming man, if you don't understand how God loves, then there's no possible way you can understand why God would send his son to die. It makes no sense. Now, these are the guys that have to understand these truths because they're the, the leaders of the early church. The church itself, the gospel, no less, is built on these two concepts, and they're the ones that are supposed to lead others to understanding it. And so what we're looking at now in Matthew are two scenes That Matthew chose to put right after the moment of Jesus' declaration so that we would understand how Jesus begins to deal with the ignorance of his disciples. And in each of these moments, Jesus seizes upon a set of circumstances that came into his view, that came to pass, and in these moments, he uses them as a teaching example for his disciples. Now, we studied the first of those last week. That was at the end of chapter 17. That's the moment in which Jesus exposed Peter's lack of appreciation for the incarnation. Remember, those tax collectors came calling to Peter's house while Jesus and the disciples were in the house, and Peter goes out to talk to these men, and they tell Peter, hey, your your rabbi has not paid his temple tax. Is he going to pay it? And Peter thoughtlessly committed Jesus to paying that tax without understanding, without considering the implications of Jesus being God. And so when Peter re-enters the house, remember Jesus spoke first and he told Peter that he should have considered his deity. The way he did it, of course, is he said, the sons of the king don't pay the king's taxes. In other words, as we learned last week, if Peter had understood that Jesus is God, he would not have expected Jesus to pay a tax that God himself requires. It was as if Jesus was paying himself. And so the incarnation of God, that is, that God became man so that he could take our place in receiving the penalty for our sin, that detail is at the core of the gospel and of our faith, and that's what Peter was lacking at that point. In fact, do you realize, if it weren't for the need to die in our place, Jesus would never have become man. There's no reason for God to become man, except that he needed to stand in our place. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, the Father, made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus became a man so that he could live the life you and I cannot live, and then he would die the death that we dare not die. All right, Now that's the truth, the meaning of the incarnation. Peter, on the other hand, and the other disciples, they didn't see that at the time. And it's not hard to understand why. Every time I looked in Jesus back in that day, they saw a lowly, humble man that looked just like them. And as such, it it belied his divine nature. It it, it caused them to overlook the fact that he was actually God also. And because they didn't understand the fact that he was God, they couldn't understand why he came to die. Now, that was the first lesson last week. This week, we get the second lesson on the second concept, the second uh, theological point they needed to understand if they're going to appreciate why Jesus dies. And that second lesson is on God's self-sacrificial love. And it's the scene that opens Matthew 18. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I have to pause there because Matthew in his typical form doesn't give us a lot of background. In the way Matthew writes, he often just drives right into the topic. But in this case, it says Matthew says, At that time. What he's saying is this. He's saying, At the same time as the events were going on in chapter 17, this scene also took place. And in order to get the background to appreciate the connection, you have to go to Mark's Gospel. So I'm going to temporarily go there. You can flip forward to Mark if you like. Put your thumb in the pages if if you've got a screen instead of a book. Oh, well, so much for that. But Mark 9, verse 31. Same moment, same set of circumstances, but listen to the extra detail. Mark 9, 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had been discussing with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. All right, so now you get the connection, right? Mark makes it clear how the earlier moment when Jesus said he was going to die is now connected to the moment when all of a sudden the conversation is about the greatest. And as you see from last week, these guys were confused. They didn't understand what he meant. They're a little put off by it. They're grieved, Matthew said. And they're too afraid to ask questions to get further clarification. So... Instead of dwelling on that bad news, what do these guys do? They change the subject to a discussion of who's the greatest in the kingdom. Now, in a way, it's not inappropriate because we know from elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus tells us that in the kingdom to come, and for those who may not be aware of this concept, we're talking about the time in which Jesus returns to earth as promised, lives here with us yet again, only this time he rules the earth with a rod of iron, uh, ruling all the nations in a thousand-year kingdom on earth. That's what we're waiting for. And in that time, Jesus says, he will assign his disciples, I'm talking about every believer now, he will assign us a position of some kind, a responsibility in the kingdom to serve him in the government. We will have positions of authority in the government, the Bible says, reigning with Christ, he says. And where you are in the government of that kingdom will be dependent, at least to some degree, on how you serve him now. And that distinction, that is, your work for him now is the basis for Christ to award merit in the kingdom, that's the essence of their conversation. They are going into that conversation. They're saying to themselves, I wonder which of us will earn the right to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. That's the concept here. Now, the timing of this conversation is entirely inappropriate because it is coming on the heels of Jesus' statement that he's going to suffer and die. And they didn't understand it fully. We got that. But they should at least have appreciated the significance of that and the weightiness of it. And these guys knew they were doing something wrong because you notice in Mark 9, chapter 9, verse 34, when Jesus says, hey, what were you guys talking about? They knew that they were in trouble, so they said nothing. It's like their hands were caught in the cookie jar, right? So they, they got it. They realized that they had probably been a little insensitive. But here's the thing. Their insensitivity is not the main concern here. The main concern here is that they have shown evidence of knowing absolutely nothing about how honor will work in the kingdom. Matthew says they were discussing which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, we don't get the discussion recorded here, but look, it's not that hard to figure out. I mean, just think about it for a minute. How would you have approached a conversation Like this. Can we imagine how that conversation might have gone? I like to think Peter probably said, Well, you know, Jesus called me the rock. So, you know, I think I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. At which point I imagine James maybe responding, Jesus meant that you're as dumb as a rock, Peter. I'm going to be greatest in the kingdom. And then, of course, at that point you got John saying, but I'm the one whom Jesus loved. I, I'm gonna be greatest in the kingdom, right? I mean, I, it, I don't know what they were really saying, but you know it had to be something like I'm the oldest, I'm the strongest, I'm the most courageous. Whatever they were saying, we know by Jesus' response that they were measuring greatness in terms of things like personal power, personal achievement, personal status, the amount of hard work they give Jesus, something like that, right? That is a very human way of thinking about honor. In our way of thinking about honor, whoever obtains the most accolades in this world will be, we assume, the one God will honor the most in the next. It's just the way we're wired to think. But God's ways are not man's ways. And Jesus gives you here the way that God will measure greatness, when we read in Mark 935, he says, the one who desires to be first in the kingdom must seek to be last in this world and the servant of everyone. Now look, the terms first and last, I think it's obvious what they mean. They refer to worldly achievement, worldly status, worldly honor. And you know exactly what it means to be first in this world, don't you? We all do. In fact, doesn't the world teach us, from a very young age, the value of being first? Receiving the most recognition, obtaining the most possessions, wielding the most power, being the best in every way possible, isn't that being first? First? In the world? From your earliest years, aren't you told be first in your class? First to raise your hand with the answer? First to be picked for the kickball team out in the recess period, right? Those are things that show honor. When you get out of school, you want to be first to be promoted, first to have your private office, first to make vice president, whatever the goal is. In general, everyone wants to be first and have the most. First in line, first with the new phone, first to see the new movie, first to... To do everything that people do. In fact, don't we celebrate the people who have the most likes on Instagram, the most views on YouTube, the most tools, the most shoes, the most attention at the party, the most sales awards? You're impressed by the biggest truck, the most expensive purse, the skinniest waist, the biggest biceps, etc, etc, etc. And that's just my list. <laughs> Honestly, it's just pride, it's just ego me, me, me. And it's the way the world assigns value and bestows honor. And in the words of Solomon, it's all vanity. But Jesus says, if you want to be first in the kingdom, you're going to have to live by a different standard now. And and let me clarify, friends, you do want to be first in the kingdom. Because if there's ever a place to be first, it's that place. Being first in the kingdom will mean receiving the best of what God has to offer, and here's the kicker, you get to enjoy it in a guilt-free, sin-free environment, in a place where no one can take it, in a place where nothing will destroy it, and you get to have it for a thousand years plus. If you think being first in this fallen, corrupt world is worth giving everything for, wait till you see what it's like to be first in the kingdom. So what the Lord is holding out here is an opportunity for anyone who desires it, and that is that you can be first in a place where it really matters. You only have to do one thing. And keep in mind, of course, we're not talking about how you get to the kingdom. That's by faith alone. We're talking about those of faith having been saved. Now, what is your obligation to Christ? And for us, he says, to receive the most honor in the kingdom, you just need to be last in this world. Now, you also know what it means to be last, don't you? Being last in this world means being willing to set aside the pursuit of being first according to the world's standards. It means giving up your place in line to that person who needs it more or frankly just wants it more or allowing others to step on you as they climb the corporate ladder or leaving others to win the rat race while you're focused on finishing the race that leads to eternal glory as Paul describes it. It means making yourself a servant of everyone else, and as you do that, you're probably gonna have fewer accolades at work. You're probably gonna have less business or social success. You may even have a smaller bank account, because the, the truth is, you only have so much time, and you only have so much energy, and the world is asking for all of it to the glory of itself, and the Lord's saying, you can choose that, or you can choose to be last in that category, and then I'll reward you in the kingdom. Pick one. Pick one. And we all sort of do a little of both, don't we? If you want to be last in this world, what it means is challenging yourself to learn to be content with watching others achieve or possess more than you. Putting the needs of Christ ahead of your personal career and financial goals or entertainment goals or whatever it is. And for parents, it means teaching your kids they can't have everything that other kids have necessarily. Being last means loving God and others more than you love yourself. That's the bottom line. And as such, it really turns the world's priorities upside down over and over and over again. But here's the most interesting thing about this formula. What do you think is easier, to be first in this world or to be last? What takes more effort? What takes more time? Do you realize it's harder to be first in line than it is to be last It's harder to pursue the American dream than it is to let go of it, at least to some degree. The point I'm making here is Jesus is not asking you to do the hard thing, not in relative terms. He's actually asking you to do the easy thing. But it comes at the expense of crucifying your flesh. That's the hard part. And here's the thing. He's also offering to reward you if you're willing to do it. And just to be clear, and I want to make this clear because I think at some point it starts to sound too one-sided, He's not demanding self-deprivation. That is, this is not to be a pursuit of piety or poverty, for that matter. What is it a pursuit of? It's a pursuit of others over self. That's the distinction. Which means, even as you go about being last, so to speak, you may still find that you possess some nice things, you achieve some significant things, you receive some honor in this world. It's not to say that you have to live in a way that is completely Uh, devoid of enjoyment of life. That is an extreme view of what Jesus is saying. His point is, don't make the pursuit of those things your goal if it comes at the expense of pleasing him and serving the needs of the kingdom. There will be times when those two things come into conflict, you know which one you should choose. It's a choice of having your reward now or having it later. And even more than that, it's a matter of cultivating the love of God inside yourself. Because when you love the way God loves, you naturally seek for the things God seeks. Someone who loves like God desires for someone else to be first. Someone else to get the prize. Someone else to have what this world offers. The one who loves like God sees two donuts left on the tray, one of them beautiful and perfect, the other one smashed and who would want it, and you pick the one that no one else would want. So that the next person gets the nice one. You come to the church, there's an up-front parking spot, there's one near the back. Leave the up-front one, up one for me. I, mean, I meant for someone else. It's a joke. You get the point, right? Funny, driving is sort of the classic example in our culture. You can be the nicest person in the world, and then you get behind the wheel of a car, suddenly you're anonymous, and that other side of you comes out, Right? The one who loves like God turns the other cheek, blesses those who curse you, forgives his enemies. You get the point, right? So where does this fit into today's lesson? Well, here's how. If these disciples had correctly understood how greatness in the kingdom was going to be assigned, how do you think their discussion would have gone in that case? How would they have been comparing each other in that set of circumstances? Don't you think they would have been asking who was the greatest servant? Who was making the greatest sacrifices? Who was the most selfless? That would have been the criteria they would have been pursuing. Clearly, from what we see Jesus saying, that's not what they were thinking. And more importantly, if they had understood how God assigns merit, what would they have thought about Jesus when he says, I've come to suffer and to die? If you understand how God loves, you instantly appreciate why God has called his son to suffer on a cross, because you begin to understand that is the ultimate display of being last. That is the example of sacrifice for others. That's agape love. Agape in the Bible just means self-sacrificial love. John 3.16. Anybody heard this verse? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now everyone knows that verse, I would assume. But here's the thing to remember. The emphasis in that verse is not on the belief part. We tend to put the emphasis there because we use this verse often in an evangelistic context. And fair enough, it's perfectly fine for doing so. But the emphasis in the Greek in that text is on God's love, not our belief. God so loved the world. The point is this. If you don't have the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, there's nothing to believe in. Your belief, your salvation through faith, didn't start with your believing. It started with God's dying. It started with God's sacrifice of his son so that you have something to believe in. In fact, later in his first letter, John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, John says that the definition of love from God's point of view is not how you feel about God. It's about what God did For you, he says in 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love, but this love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Here's what John just said, and I'm gonna keep it really simple. John just said love is not a noun, It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not a state of being. I mean, that's often the way we speak about love, right? I love you. I've fallen in love. I love her. But you notice what's common about all those statements of love? It's very self-centered. I. I, 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 I love. I love. That's how we say what we're feeling, and that's perfectly fine. But God's love is not a noun. It's a verb. It is a self-sacrificial action. On behalf of us and others, John says, love is God sending his son to receive wrath in your place. That's what love is. It sets the standard, not just for the definition of love, but it sets the standard for us on how to love. John 1, uh, 1 John four eleven. the very next verse, says this, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, he doesn't mean it this way. Because God died for us, we should have nice, loving feelings for one another. That's not what that means. The definition of love didn't change in that sentence. He's saying, if God loved us by giving himself up for us, we should do the same for others, giving ourselves up for others. That's the idea. We love others the way he loved us. That's the principle. And if you're struggling to understand, well, how do I actually do this? What does it look like? Well, Jesus actually gives us a very simple and clear example in Matthew. Back to Matthew, finally, verse 2 of chapter 18. Look what he says next. He called a child to himself and set him before them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus chose to take a child, must have been playing nearby, we don't know, but pulls this child in, and Mark actually tells us he sets this child down in front of the disciples. So the child becomes an object lesson for the disciples, and the word in Greek for this child would indicate a very young child, maybe a toddler, maybe someone of of two, three, four, five, not, not a very old child at all. And Jesus, in pointing out this child, makes two points. The first point is on conversion, and as we would say, how you get saved. But that's only a preparatory point. His real point, his main point, is the second one, which is how to live as a Christian, how to be the greatest in the kingdom. And you have to get from one to the other to understand it. So we start with the first one. How does salvation enter the heart of any person? He says it's like a child. And what he's speaking about here is the process by which we experience salvation. You remember in John chapter 3, Jesus says that you cannot enter heaven unless you are born again. So he's using a child example even there. Here's what he's saying. The process of salvation does not begin with a work of human beings. It begins with a work of God. That in the Spirit of God, there is a change in the nature of us, a spiritual change made by God through the Spirit, being birthed again, so to speak, in our spirit. And it brings a two-part process in our thinking and in our heart. First, repentance, and then faith in the gospel itself. And as you see that happen in someone's life, I want you to think about what that actually looks like. And it may be easier to imagine it. If you were saved as an adult, like I was, my late 20s, then you will probably identify with this very easily. If you were saved as a child, it may not have been at a time in life when you can fully appreciate what was going on in your heart. But you can still understand it because if you've seen it in anybody else, it's always the same. I had a conversation this week with somebody in our church who is literally going through this process right now. And it was such perfect timing for me because it was just the object lesson I needed to see this too. What is the first step of someone's salvation? As God brings faith to their heart, their initial response is one of repentance, the Bible says. That is, they are humbled. And I can say it this way. You see your sin the way God sees it. For the very first time in your life. And do you know what you feel when you see it the way God sees it? You are mortified. You are crushed. You can't stand yourself. You are embarrassed over your history. You are amazed that you ever chose to live and do the things you did, and you wonder how you did it. And as a result, you throw yourself on the mercy of God. You, you recognize you're in trouble. You've got real problems with God, and God is not pleased with your behavior, nor should he be, for you're not even pleased with it at that point. And in that moment, you receive the mercy of God in the story of Christ on the cross. You find your solution, as you should, in the gospel. And then comes the joy of salvation. Do you know in that moment, as you feel that emotional response to the conviction of your sin, you are like a child. That is, you are last, and you know it. You're not first with God in anything. You're not bragging about anything. You are last before God. That experience Is basically the opposite of what you find in the hearts of unbelievers, especially if they are religiously minded. You know the kind I'm talking about? These are the people who think they deserve to be first with God because they do all the rituals that a church asks them to do. They have piety. They believe they impress God with all of their effort. And they know that they'll be in heaven simply because they deserve it. They've kept all the rules, they've done all the things. You ever met someone like that? You ever been someone like that? Jesus tells a story in Luke that illustrates the comparison between these two experiences, the one of true faith and the one of self-righteousness. It goes like this in Luke 18, 10. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to even lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. A true salvation experience, Jesus says, is always associated with humility. That is, being last in your own heart before God. And Jesus says, that's like being a child. And what does he mean? Well, think about a child. And when I say a child now, I mean a very young child, properly raised, in the home. They make no decisions. They have no authority. They are usually doing something wrong, and so they are often receiving correction. Uh, They are servants of everyone, they are first in nothing, and that's basically what Jesus is talking about. Entering into the kingdom by faith, being born again, is like showing up again in this world only now as a child in a home. We come in because of the Father's love, uh, not for anything of our own. We start life in this new way, humbly, bringing nothing with us and contributing nothing of our own to the process, like a child. And then Jesus says, that being the way you started your walk with me, it should also be the way you move forward in your walk with me. And he moves to the second point now, in verse 4, and he says, not only must we be born again in humility, but we must live as a child humbly, remaining under authority, remaining submitted to the Lord, not seeking to be first. What do you call a young child that thinks he's or her is first in everything? Precocious spoiled, brat, right? Who wants to be around someone like that? Children are not supposed to think they're first. Remember the old adage, to be seen and not heard? There's some wisdom in that, friends. That there is something about a child that we expect the humility to come with their point in time as they are at that stage of life. They should not be expecting to be first. And if you take that analogy to the point of an adult in the body, as soon as we become Christian, how dare we walk around as if we are first in life? That's not the attitude of a Christian, not seeking to be first either among your brothers and sisters in the body, and neither with the world at large. We realize that true obedience means seeking to be last. Whoever succeeds at being last, that is, serving others self-sacrificially, you will be exalted in time by God. He will exalt those who are humble. Just as Jesus, who by the way is your best example in this, as usual, Jesus was First of all creation. Do you know he made everything? Colossians 1 said there is nothing that is in existence that was not made by through and for him. And yet, he became part of it to die for it. The very first becoming the very last. And why did he do it? So that he would receive the most glory in his kingdom. Now, you see why these guys were struggling to understand why Jesus was going to die, right? Every time Jesus said I'm going to die, They were confused. I bet sometimes they were probably asking themselves, well, if you know you're gonna die, why don't you do something about it? Right, they're thinking that it's not a good thing. What they failed to consider is Jesus intended to die. He was willing to die. It was a sacrifice for them. And that's what it means to love the way God loves. That is agape love, to lay your life down for your friends. And it's entirely incomprehensible to the world. And that's what he's asked us to do in ministry. Do you understand your most powerful witness to the world is going to be showing the love of God through your sacrificial life? Making sacrifices for other people, becoming a servant to everyone, putting everyone above you. You know, if you do that consistently and genuinely, you are mirroring God's love, and it is a powerful tool. You will never make a stronger case for Christ than when you serve someone self-sacrificially. Do you realize what a shock it is for someone in this day and age to encounter a person who is not self-absorbed and focused on themselves at the expense of others? Do you know how rare that is? The world is filled now with people who do nothing but, but crow about themselves. Social media has just made it worse. And you run into someone who says, no, I don't mind you going first. No, I don't mind you having the best. No, I'll serve you, don't worry about me. That just, that just it, it just shocks people. They don't know what to do with that. But if you do that consistently, when they encounter that heart of humility, that heart of service, they're having a moment with God's type of love, and you only need a few experiences with it to get hungry for more. To think that that's what I want. And in that opens a door for you to have conversations, invite them to know Christ, invite them to know the church. I mean, that's how most evangelism really works. Think about it the other way around. If we're arrogant, out for self, like the world, living like the world does, well, why would they think we have any different message than they already have? We look like them. So we have these disciples. They're arguing over who would be first. And think now about the timing. They're arguing about who would be first immediately after Jesus explained to them he was gonna be last for their sake. Their ignorance of God's love and of the incarnation has been a barrier to them appreciating what their own Lord is preparing to do. And if we make those same mistakes, we effectively negate our opportunities for the gospel as well. Because if you can't explain to someone why God became man or if you fail to make clear that his death was a self-sacrificial act of God for your sake, for that person's sake, then you're basically missing the gospel. If you try to tell someone God loves you and has a plan for their life, that may sound nice, but that doesn't save anybody. What saves them is the knowledge that their sin is a barrier and God has made a way to cover that and understanding how is understanding the gospel. The writer of Hebrews explains it to us, in one verse, as we wrap up today, Hebrews 2.9, he says, We do not see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In typical style for the writer of Hebrews, it's an awkward sentence in the Greek when translated to English, but here's what he said. He said, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a time. What is that a reference to? I'll give you one guess the incarnation, made like men. And he says he took this humble form so that he could taste death for all of us, the sacrificial death of Christ. And why would God be willing to humble himself in that way? The writer says, because of the grace and love that he has for us, agape love. And we might add, what did Jesus gain from doing this? The writer says that he would be crowned with glory and honor. So friends, if your Lord can be crowned with glory and honor, for humbling himself in the way that he did, there's your example. Your honor will come if you seek to be last. As a church body, we've heard today already a little bit about what we want to do as a church and why we want to do it. Now I hope you understand how, fundamentally how, we're supposed to go do it. Just as much as you understand God's plan for your life, you understand his plan for how we reach the world? It starts with seeking to be last and showing a love that is not a noun, it's a verb. It's not about how emotional we get in this room or how emotional we are with other people. You can bring emotion, that's perfectly fine. It's not the basis of how you bring people to know Christ. It's an action, self-sacrificial love. It's like a child. If you make sacrifices for others in the way that you're called to, he says you can expect two things. Number one, you can expect Christ to use your humility and your self-sacrificial love to prompt curiosity in others for the gospel, And as such, giving you opportunities to introduce them to Christ. That's the first result. And then the second result, Jesus says he'll take note of your sacrificial service and he will reward you in the kingdom. If there was ever a win-win proposition, that's it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come here, Father, because we love you and we're serious about our faith. And love, Father, requires self sacrificial action. So I pray, Father, we won't just love you with our words. We won't just love you with emotion. But we'll love you with our actions so that we may serve you. And our actions, Father, will be according to your word that is self sacrificial, serving all, doing our very best to be Christ to those who we encounter. And Father, forgive us when we fall short, for we will from day to day. But encourage our hearts to think about this, knowing that. You are faithful and just, that there is a reward available to those who serve you well. And if we set our hearts on being first where it really matters, we'll be willing to be last now for the sake of your glory. I thank you, Father, that you've shown that to us today. For those who have felt the conviction of the word and are feeling prompted by your spirit now, Father, to speak about it, to confess you or to confess their sin or to make any proclamation you have laid on their heart. I pray they would come forward as they feel led to those who are waiting for them to pray and to speak about these things, Father. Help us to minister to those hearts in the best possible way, sacrificially. Send us out of here, Father, as ambassadors who care more about the world around us than we do about our own, our own priorities. And Father, equip us with the right words at the right time for those we meet. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.